0: And answers. Christians argue that the miraculous life of Jesus sets him apart from all other religious leaders of the world however critics argue that other religious leaders have miracle accounts critics also question the accuracy of the New Testament accounts since they were written decades after the life of Christ is Jesus unique from all other religious leaders what about the miracle accounts in the other religions you're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zuccaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat and Dr. Gary Habermas examine these challenges and explain why Jesus is unique among all the religious leaders of the world.
1: 50 critical scholars who say that Paul was there and did in Jerusalem and interviewed Peter. James, the brother of Jesus, and John. And the first two we interviewed, the first trip, Galatians 1, he interviewed Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and they put that at plus five. Five years after the cross, that's when he interviewed them. And he's telling us now they accept Paul, critics accept Paul is a legitimate witness. Because here's what they'll say they'll say Paul basically had a PhD in Old Testament. He was really sharp. He knew the languages. He studied. He was a Pharisee. He tells us that he was an expert in the Old Testament. He's a good ethicist. He's an honest man. He could be wrong. The critics say he could be wrong, but he's not going to lie to you. So he's really honest, and so they accept what he says in Galatians one and two. You know, I, I should tell you this, Pat. When I mentioned already my um, my late buddy Anthony Flew who at the time, he became a theist later, but he was the best known philosophical atheist in the world for decades and he and I were together, we were good friends, and we were together, and I heard him say it. we were at a university together several times, and he said to people, he said, Paul was a first-rate philosopher, Jesus is a first-rate moral philosopher, and I was interested in that distinction. He emphasizes morality with Jesus, morality and ethics, and for Paul, he emphasized his logical progression of his arguments. So when we were alone, I said, Tony, um, I'm just curious, on what grounds do you call Paul a world-class philosopher? (laughs) And what he said, I'll always remember it. He goes, my golly, have you ever read the book of Romans? (laughs) <laughs> I'm thinking, have I ever read the Book of Romans? Here he is an atheist. He says, Have you ever read the Book of Romans? And I said, Sure. He goes, Anybody who reads the Book of Romans knows the man can carry an argument. You don't have to agree with him, but you can know he you know he knows how to argue. So Paul's a first rate philosopher, Jesus is a first rate ethicist. And that's why they're so well known to people who like Anthony Flew are athe- or were atheists
2: yeah he was a titan uh when it comes to the world of philosophy and yeah he was yeah
1: he really really was and i was privileged to interview him uh six years before he died and we co-authored an article published in a leading philosophy journal philosophia christi and it was called if i have the exact wording right it's called my pilgrimage from atheism to theism and it was what convinced Antony Flew to become a theist. And he interchanged the words theist and, and deist, because he was afraid too many people don't understand deist. But, but anyway, that he, theist is in that title. He gives three arguments, by the way, for why he had to come to believe in God. One, uh, just real quickly, one is Aristotle's metaphysics, which involved questions like, you look at the universe, and why is there something here rather than nothing here? A lot of lay people say, yeah, well, where'd the Big Bang come from? That's basically the same question. Uh, Why is there something rather than nothing? Second argument, he did buy the arguments from intelligent design, and he wanted to know why even people like Dawkins admit the order in the world. Remember, Dawkins says there's extreme order in the world, but that's just an illusion. It doesn't really mean anything. But there is order. Anthony Flew said, yeah, well, that's a pointer to God. And number three, he said, why are there laws of nature? Why do two plus two always equal four? And you could say, well, that's because I just read a guy trying to do this just today. The guy said, well, when the world came into existence, however it did, he said, that's just the way it was set up. And two plus two, nothing holy about two and two, it's just that two plus two is always going to be four. But the question is going to be, like Francis Schaeffer used to say, if you have time plus chance plus the impersonal, a lot of time. A lot of chance, as much chance as you want. And in a personal beginning, if you're an atheist, why does 2.2 plus 2 equal 4? Why is pi always the same? How is there that kind of laws? And those three things are what brought Anthony Flew to becoming um, a theist.
2: So, Gary, you know, we see here how Jesus is unique from any other religious leader in world history. But, you know, there is the question out there for many of us, many of our listeners out there, how do we know that all religions are not valid ways to God? Don't we all have a piece of the pie?
1: That's a good question, Pat. I mean, it really is, because Jesus isn't—I have no problem as a Christian saying there were leaders in other religions who were ethical, who were ethical leaders— who could teach ethics in universities. I have no problem with that. In fact, fact, I just thought about this. I didn't say it on purpose to lead to this verse, but as I was uh, just getting to the end of that sentence, I thought to myself, Pat, think about Romans 1 and 2, which says that we came into this world, we're all born, and there's two ways we can know God exists. One is up in the heavens. By looking at the heavens, the other one's looking inside us because of the moral law inside of us. I mean, it's very possible in your town the best farmer is an atheist. That's very possible. Mm-hmm. Maybe the guy in, the, in your town who would least likely ever lie is, uh, let's just make him an ex-military man, and he's an atheist. Let's just you know do that. That's true. The ethics is true. I think there are a lot of very exemplary people in world religions. But you go, well, do you believe in him or God? Well, now when they don't even say that. Show me one person in a major religion, a, a Muhammad, a Confucius, a Lao Tzu of Daoism, uh, Muhammad, Zoroaster, take anyone in the Old Testament, Moses, David, Daniel, who said they were deity. You go, well, Jesus didn't say he was God. I know, we've already done that. Okay, so which of those claimed to be Lord and meant it in the sense of God? It's hardly prejudice if I don't believe that they're the Lord of the universe when they either said they weren't, which is very frequently true, or never made that claim. I can't put those words on their mouth just to be politically correct. I'm talking about history here.
2: One of the most popular questions that are asked out here is, what about those who have never heard of Jesus then? If he's the only way to eternal life what about those who've never heard
1: okay well I, I i could make some of your listeners uh really mad with this one or i could make them say huh that's awful depends on who they are let me give the two major views and the two major responses now you say well there's another one all religions are ways to god yeah but if the religious founder we're talking about doesn't claim to be a deity and doesn't claim to have the only way, I mean, you know, what are we supposed to do? But as far as what about people who are worshiping some other person and they've never heard of Jesus, what happens? Well, the classic Christian answer is, if they respond, God will send them a messenger. We see that in the New Testament with Paul being sent to, I mean— Around the whole eastern end of the Mediterranean, all the way over to to Rome, uh, Paul goes and speaks. We got the well-known case of uh, uh, Peter being called to Cornelius's house. He's a Roman, and Cornelius has been praying and giving alms, and and God sends Peter to his house. The classic answer is, God will reveal Himself to those who search in terms of Romans 1 and 2, and see God in nature and or in themselves. But the second, that, that view is called exclusivism. Now what both these major views have in common is the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. But the first, Because that's just what the evidence says. I'm not trying to be, you know, weird or something. It's what the evidence says. But the first view says they have to know who he is. Let's use a Christmas example. You get a gift from somebody, and it says Love. Mom, okay, you know who the gift is from, and you know who to thank, but what if you get a gift from somebody, and there's no tag on it, or it came off, and it came in the mail, so that person's not present. Could you still open the gift? Sure, because it says Pat on the outside of the gift, and it came to your house, but, you know, there was no return address. The second most common view is that anybody who gets there will get there through Jesus, But if a person really, really searches, and let's take a famous case. There's a famous case of a tribe, an original or an Aboriginal tribe in in a country. It's an actual historical case. And the medicine man has a dream that a white man is coming with a black book, and they didn't even have books. And he said, leave the boards of this book, and that's God's will for you. And he told everybody about this dream. And the people were looking forward to a white man coming with a black book. He even told them what tree he was going to set up under. And when the guy came, like seven years later, he set up under that tree. But it was a large tribe of people. And in the meantime, a whole lot of people died. Now, that sounds like the Old Testament. So in other words, it seems like a lot of people died looking forward to somebody they never met whose name they didn't know. The second view is called inclusivism, and it says if you throw yourself on God's mercy, God is going to do what he can for you. And what He, what I say, what he can, it's not like he can't do something, but his own rule he set up is, uh, I already gave it as one of the eight rules, that what you do with Jesus determines where you spend eternity. God can give you a gift without a name on it, but the gift is still for you. Now, Again, I don't want to make people upset with one of these views or the other views, but when you take world religions classes, and if you think Jesus is the most unique founder of world religion, like, uh, again, Paul Barnett says he's the most unique person in ancient history, given the sources, those are the two views you're going to get. People who know him, know who he is, and then they might meet him in a dream or something, as we hear a lot about today. They might, but then they know who he is. But other people will say, well, they tell God they're tired of looking, they throw themselves on God's mercy, and Jesus is there. And the only way they can come is through Jesus, but if they make themselves open to God, God will make the move. don't know what you think about those two, Pat, but just to be open. If I were teaching, a, I teach all PhD classes, I would tell my PhD students, these are the two most prominent views, and a person has to pick the view. What they both have in common is not The second one, you have exclusivism and inclusivism. The second one does not mean inclusivism. They can come through their religion. That's not what that means. It's often misdefined. Inclusivism means you also only get there through Jesus. That doesn't mean you have his name written down on on your gift.
2: Yeah. Now, there's a growing movement. I'm running into these people more and more It's related to this. They argue that the unsaved, those who reject Christ, will be annihilated. Yeah. You know, there's not of not this eternal punishment forever in hell. How cruel yeah. of God to do something like that. And, right. You know, I teach at the uh, seminary uh, here now as well and in other parts of the uh, world, and I'm running to a, a lot of students who are embracing this annihilation. Of,
1: right, right. In fact, I just <laughs> I told you earlier that I picked up a journal because I wanted to read an article in it, and I forgot that my article was in that journal. I couldn't even have answered a quiz question on it. But the reason I wanted to read the article was that the book was being reviewed, the new reworking of the Four Views on Hell book that Zondervan does. And the very fact, when I gave two views a moment ago about those who've never heard, a lot of people think... Well, you can't say that. There can only be one view. No, what I'm saying is that in Christianity, these are the two most common views on what about those who've never heard, the two most common answers. Well, this book came out, and it was already out like 20 years ago, and or 25-something, and it was called Four Views on Hell. Well, they redid it with a new editor, and one of the four views is annihilation, and it, it, the first book didn't do that one, but the second one did. And it argues that the words in the New Testament were destroyed, and there are words in the original languages that imply to some people that God never promised to be true. Well, I mean, they had a shot, but God never said you're going to have it. So they go for all the marbles, and they didn't want the Lord, and they lived a good life. And when they're done, they just don't live again. That's not Being roasted over a pit. I I can also tell you, Pat, that I another book called by a Talbot professor, forty I think it's called Forty Questions on Heaven and Hell. He says in there one of his questions is, "What's the majority view on the nature of hell?" He says the metaphorical view, C.S. Lewis's view, Hmm. is the number one view, that hell is eternal, it doesn't end, but if you say you don't want God and you walk away from Him. Hmm. God's going to let you walk away from. If you break up in a relationship, you've got to have the right in our law, you've got to have the right to walk away. You might make everybody angry, but you've got the right to walk away. you got the right to do a lot of things that people may not want. And if you walk away from Jesus you're going to have a world that you ask for, which is one where God's not boss, and his word is not read, and all the, what we call common grace, you know, I already said maybe the best farmer in your town is an atheist. That's entirely possible. Maybe the most ethical man in your town is an atheist. Entirely possible. But you're going to be in a world where maybe a lot of other people aren't going to be the most ethical people because you said you didn't want God and his laws, and you wanted to walk somewhere else to, to another place, and he's going to allow your choice. Anyway, this book, whatever that's worth, the, that, this book said, this is not of how people come to Christ, your, your question, but the but the other one you ask about annihilation, this is about what happens to those who finally walk away. And he said that this metaphorical view, where they're going to live with uh, depression and anxiety apart from the God of the universe and his good graces, that's the view of hell that's taught in Scripture. And one of the things they say about the other view is how can you have hellfire, which is bright? For example, the book of Jude, the one-chapter book, has hell being both hellfire and eternal blackness, darkness. You can say, see, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, that's not required at all. And you don't even have to, have, you don't have to take this view. But in the book of Jude, you can say, well, Jude did the best job he could explaining things in words we all understand. We still don't understand this today. And if it says fire and blackness, it what it means is, you don't want to go there, it's not good. So just think about it. He's not dying for the degrees in hell. You know, we get have discussions about are there really worms in hell? And how can worms eat a raised body? You know, so there's some funny conundrums. And, and people could say, well, they're conundrums because they're not meant to be taken literally. So that's the metaphorical view. And this book by Gomes, Professor Talbot said that's the most common view today. But like I said, your response, Annihilation is now one of the four major views in the Four Views book. And the reason they're four views is because Christians take that position, whether you like it or not.
2: Yes, you know, and I can sympathize with the Annihilationist view. I mean, to be separated from God forever. Man, that's just a horrible thing. And to think that some of my loved ones will be separated from God forever. That's almost unbearable for me to think. So, I, although yep. I don't agree with the annihilation list, you know, I, I I do sympathize with that
1: view. Yeah, I'm I'm like you, Pat. I don't agree with annihilation either. But I want to get this across. You know, Zondervan and and Intervarsity, two major evangelical publishers, they have something like I might be way under estimating, but they have something like 60. Three, four, and five-views books. Why do evangelicals, conservative Christians, have three, four, and five views on things? Because outside of the yellow brick road, outside of the gospel, outside of things we have to believe, I don't mean that pejoratively, but outside of things we believe to become Christians, there are just a lot of views on things. And I think it's cool because God allows us to have different views. He doesn't tell us we have to have one view on every last thing. He's not a dictator. Yeah. And people do have more than one view.
2: Yes. And I think one of the uh, things we all agree, well, all the Christians are agreed upon is on the resurrection of Christ, something yep. that you yep. have defended yep. on for most of your lifetime. You've yeah. seen uh, great uh, debaters come and go. Has there ever been an argument you felt that was the strongest or threatened the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
1: This is incredible, Pat, because I was doing a broadcast yesterday for uh, another person like yourself who has got a great audience and has been pursuing apologetics for a long time, and he asked me the same question. And I said, you know, I'll tell you what view I wouldn't take that I don't think wins. I wouldn't take any of the so-called naturalistic theories, I wouldn't say, oh, the disciples sold the body, oh, Jesus did die on the cross. I wouldn't take one of those views because there are loads of evidence against it. I mean, Bart Ehrman, again, the atheist agnostic, he uses both words, uh, New Testament scholar, he goes off on those views, and he's an atheist. And he says in his books, I'm not a Christian, okay, but those views are silly. Okay, so the guy yesterday asked me, what view do I think is the best? I would say it's probably the view— that says, you guys believe in two worlds. We only believe in one. You have to have this world and the next. We only have this world. So our view is less complicated than yours. So by the law of uh, the rule of simplicity, Occam's razor, our view is better. Well, I'd respond several ways to that. But one way I would respond, Pat, here, here's a couple of real quickies in just like a minute. If God exists, miracles are possible. There's an argument right there. If God exists, miracles are possible. And if miracles are possible, two worlds, this world and another world, that's not an issue. Second response, if near-death experiences are true, and I think they are maybe the most evidential phenomena in natural theology, if near-death experiences show us there's an afterlife, what category is the resurrection of Jesus? Afterlife. And when people say, you make you make me believe in two worlds, uh, Jesus walking on earth and an afterlife where I can live if I believe in Him. But near-death experiences say there's an afterlife. Uh, you know, I've got a book on my desk that that's every article in the book was published in a medical journal, and it and I think they're all pro near-death experiences. They're published in a medical journal. So if there's afterlife, why can't I talk about resurrection? So it's not bad. And here's a third argument: the guy who says the atheist has the uncomplicated simple view and Christians have the plural view and therefore they've got more to prove. As one leading response of that kind of view, not mine, but a leading response goes like this, yeah well on the atheist worldview, you don't just have one view. Because on the atheist worldview you wouldn't have this world. You wouldn't have this world. Because everybody admits, look at the literature, even non-Christian physicists and astrophysicists, that this world, and especially life on it, is extremely rare. The odds of, of life from non-life are almost non-existent, according to the atheists. So you don't just have a world, and I need two worlds, heaven and earth. You have atheism, you may have a world like stars out there, but you don't have life. So you have to assume a whole process of where to get life or you're, you don't have it in your system. So don't tell me your world's simpler, but I do think, because you could have either God, an afterlife, or where does your world come from, and all of those say, I'm open to the resurrection. So I think that's probably the biggest comeback just because of a trip Christians up. To say, I have two worlds and you have one world. Christians have to be prepared to say, no, your, your view is not that simple. You've got to bring other things in. It's just not, oh, here I am, me and my atheism. No, because you and your atheism sitting on earth, but there's no green grass and there's no laws and there's no intelligent design and there's nothing. Now, the minute you start populating that with views, see, you just did what you said you're not. You're bringing other things in.
2: Wow. So, yeah, and uh, I encourage you, you know, with the power of the Internet now, you can watch Gary Habermas' debate and dialogue. There these skeptics, New Testament scholars, atheists there. Uh, several of his debates on YouTube, uh, very, outstanding, very outstanding debates there to watch.
1: Well, thanks, Pat. I didn't even put them up. In fact, Lord willing, I've got a um, YouTube channel coming up very soon, and I've already got, I think it's 60... Brief interviews that are not anywhere else on my website or anything that are gonna are going right up on my. So that if you stay tuned and wow. you go to my YouTube channel or you go to my website, you get a lot of this stuff and none of it's for sale. There's no price for any of it.
2: Wow! See, I, I told you, you are breaking into the movie industry. You know? <laughs> I
1: can
2: tell you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I only said that as a joke because, uh, you know, someone was playing you in that uh, case. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It it wasn't. In other words, it was a joke, Pat. It was a joke because I broke in, sort of, because I wasn't really there. (laughs)
2: Somebody played me. (laughs) Yeah. Like I tell people, hey, that movie wasn't going anywhere. It was just going downhill and depressing until (laughs) Lee Strobel met the first apologist. And that was Gary Habermas, man, I tell you.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, it's a, Lee Lee has done a lot for the kingdom, and his books have sold millions of copies. I dare say. Mm-hmm. Josh McDowell, Josh told me one time, is more than a carpenter book. This was years ago. Told me more than a carpenter sold had sold more than twenty million
2: copies. Wow, incredible! So fantastic, yes. So this is good. Thank yeah. you. So Gary, uh, if people want to get more information on you and the kind of information that you shared here on this uh, radio interview, where can they go?
1: I would say uh, I would say uh, GaryHabermas.com, the website, GaryHabermas.com, or wait for a little while, maybe a month, and my YouTube channel should be up with automatically dozens of interviews you won't see anywhere else.
2: Oh, fantastic, fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Liberty University professor and one of the top men on the resurrection, Dr. Gary Habermas. So, Gary, thanks for being with us once again here on Evidence and Answers.
1: I loved it, Pat. Thank you.
0: We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is four eight three zero five eight six. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat (laughs) Zucran.